Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Uh, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason's all sort of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. goes up to 1972 with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hello, I'm Guy Pratt. And I'm Gary Kemp. And welcome to Rock On Tours, our new weekly podcast where we get to chat to some of our favourite people. Now, it's a strange time, and when we started thinking about making this series, we thought we'd be able to just get together with some of our friends to chat, and uh, we hope that still happens. So, recently, we jumped on our computers and called up our pal Bob Geldof. Here's our chat with a great man. Hi, guys. How's lockdown? Um... Well, I'm loving the lockdown. It's sort of um, enforced indolence, you know, guilt-free inactivity every day of Sunday. Um, uh, You know, unless I'm frantically busy, I panic like crazy. So Sunday's the only day when I'm just not allowed to end things, so that's okay. And it's been amazing spring and weather, and I've got the family around me. And every time I switch on the news, I'm painfully aware how lucky I am. Um, that I don't live in the 12th floor in a two-bedroom flat with three kids and some cunt from the government to say, you stay at home while I don't, you know. So, uh, yeah, you know. Uh, and also, you know, as as Kemp knows, we can do our job where we are. Like, you know, if I dream up a tune and send posts to the other guys or... Uh, we made a video uh, in lockdown for a new single, which is, you know, surprisingly good. And um, so I can sort of continue um, at the same time without being bothered without being bothered by people wanting to do fucking podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> How do you think the business is coping in this crisis? I mean, technology has given artists new outlets and new accessibilities. I mean, is that a good thing? You know, if I see another uh you know geezer star whatever hey here's an acoustic version of my track fuck off 
you know, and, uh, you know, if you wanted to turn into Joan Baez overnight, that's your problem, mate, but I wrote rock songs for a rock band, you know, and it was, it's that, and that, um, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work for me. Yeah, but I don't want Brian May giving me guitar, well, I don't want guitar lessons from Brian May, but I don't want him being available. It's it's that old saw, isn't it? What was the Badgett? who's the great commentator on the British Constitution, there was his comment about um, letting light in behind the curtains on the majesty with regard to the crown, you know, with regard to the... Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, the more you let the light in, the more the magic uh, is clear. You know where the rabbit is coming from out of the hat. It's the same with the idea of stardom. There must be an elemental mystique. You have to want to aspire to, tr- uh, to imagine. You know, when I was a kid, trying to imagine... When I saw the Beatles as a kid, actually seeing them, actually seeing them there, like these are four people, was an extraordinary thing. And of course, it was only 20 minutes and that they were gone or trying to imagine what Mick and Keith were doing that moment when you were in school, you know, doing your geography and they were actually alive doing something, you know, Uh, that was that was it. But uh it's changed and it's, it's a function of the new tech. Rock and roll has always been a function of technology. It's always been a bolt on to whatever the new technology is. And uh, the nature of stardom, by definition, changes. So you have, um, oh, like Taylor Swift, who has a particularly effective pseudo relationship with her fans because she's constantly uh, online. And from what I understand, randomly, they pick a hundred of her fans from around the world. And Taylor goes and gets a Christmas present for them personally and then delivers it personally to their door. That's what I've heard. It might be nonsense, but the nature of it has changed. That's, that's probably why someone like Ed Sheeran or, or Lewis Capaldi have become big stars, is that people don't want their stars to, to have leopard skin suits on like we did or look like Brian Ferry. Yeah, they want them to be... They want them to be blokes. Yeah. I mean, talking of which, but uh, th- that exact point you were making, Bob, about what do they do? What they, like, I remember still the first time I saw you in person up close, and it was it was at the venue, and you were talking to someone, and I can still remember what you were wearing. You know, it was a big deal. That's like, like there's Pop Gildoff in a room next to me, and you're right. It's as opposed to sat here now, which is what the fans' experience would be. Well, I remember the first time I saw Gildoff as well, and it was I. I think it was a, it was at somewhere like the Blitz, and I think he had a fez on or something. <laughs> I did my wrong. I did not have a fucking fez on. You did it when I saw you. I'll tell you what you were wearing. It was I'm I'm guessing Johnson's. It was a double-breasted blue suit with gold stripe and a big floppy cap. Yeah, cool. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was very cool. I, I remember you doing a video, Bob. For it might have been Rat Trap. I can't remember what 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 one it was. And you had on. A, a lanyard thing and a Diamante brooch. And I thought, oh yeah. my God, he's got there before us. Well, looking like a cunt, I got there before you. Well, <laughs> 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 two things. I don't think Blitz was around in 78. I went to a shop called um, FX and in, in Covent Garden, and there was a kid there called Steve Strange and Rusty Egan. And Steve Strange was behind the counter and uh, I'd heard of this place, so just checked it out and, you know, thought the stuff was great. And that's where I got 
the blue the blue suit from. So yeah, um, you're on the you're on you're on the case. But I think the top of the pops with the Diamante and stuff. I think that was just made up as I went along. Basically, I was just fed up with you know, like pretending to be down with the the punks. You know? <laughs> like, okay, that's done. I'm onto something new. Bob, so what about the new album? I mean, it's decades in the making. I mean, I think it's really full of joy. Tell us how it came to be. It was mainly done. Uh, my collaborator really is Pete Briquette the bass player with the rats and uh, with the solo band and sort of the MD of the solo band. And well, the reasons um, I bought it, a Steinberger, in fact. Yeah, well, I mean, he's got that. He's got the Steinberger number 11. He's also got that very early Hoffner bass, which is the, oh, yeah, the 11th yeah. one in the UK. So wow. um, that's, that's worth a bit. But uh, it took me a while to understand that he was the go-to guy in the rats. Um, you know, if, if there was someone you were going to collaborate with, uh, you know, he came up with the um, Like Clockwork, which was one of our early songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had that he had this very cool talking heads type. Um, and then we did Banana Republic and stuff like that. So when the Rats ended, um, he was, he, he like, he came and did a lot of the solo stuff with me. Uh, he lives in Acton. So... I, I don't have any equipment in the house because it befuddles me and it gets in the way of uh, the immediacy of what I'm thinking, knobs and buttons. Um, so I go, I just think, you know, have it on guitar and know what's in my head and I go around to his place and very like 15-year-olds in your bedroom, um, I put it down on guitar and voice. Uh, I go away and come back the next day and he's added stuff and I go, what the f- fuck is that and he goes yeah i don't know what what you're supposed what's in your fucking head we have this for 42 years and i said it's obvious (laughs) it's not about that what the fuck are you doing with that thing so we have this argument uh, and then uh it, it becomes the song i want it to be and um it's very it's such a long standing relationship that you know there's an immediate intuitive understanding between us and on a side, on a side note about Pete, you're saying he lives in. Wasn't it him who who uh, got Lionel Bart to hospital? Yeah, he didn't he, he lived next door to Lionel, or in the same block as? Yeah, Lionel. no, he lived he lived up the road from Lionel. Lionel lived in a in a crap flat over a betting shop in Acton uh, High Street, and uh, Pete used to visit him. And um, yeah, he was at. Uh, I'm not sure if he got yeah. him into a hospital, but uh, he became a good mate, which is pretty amazing for one of the great British songwriters, you know, to get to be a mate. Bob, I missed, I missed, I missed some of what you were saying because my internet cut out, but it was, it's basically about you writing an album that I felt was looking back a lot to, um, to your, uh, to your past and your musical influences. Was that something that you sat down consciously wanting to do or was it just, you wanted, you were feeling very elated by being back with the band again? I wasn't elated by it. I was dismayed that it worked. And um, uh, why dismayed? Because when you're a kid, and I'll defer to to yourself and Kemp actually on this, you don't know if you're any good. You're saying you're very good, but you're all the time you've got an eye on what everybody else is doing, and um, you know it, it's so full on everything that you don't really have any perspective necessarily 
on what's going on. And um, when uh, Gary and Simon, the drummer and uh, guitar player, came around and said, you want to do it? I said, no, I don't. Um, the solo thing, you know, I'd made six or seven albums, did really well, uh, could tour really anywhere in Europe, 2,000, 2,500 people, got the reviews, got the awards, etc. So no. But um, I said, out of sheer curiosity, as to whether uh, we were as good as I used to say we were, um, and vanity, I wanted to play again to 120,000 people. And frankly, the cash is always handy. So, you know, there's three excellent reasons. Um, <laughs> wasn't, that, wasn't it still difficult, though? Because when you're used to calling the shots completely when you're doing a solo record and, you know, everyone defers to you, suddenly you've, you're, you've got this sense that you've got to listen to what someone else says. Yeah, that's a good point. But how much of it is a faux democracy in the first place? And it's sort of that grates on you after a while because everybody knows that it's going to be the way the songwriter yeah. dude wants it to be. And given he's the songwriter, he's going to be doing the fucking interviews. And if another guy is doing it, it drives the songwriter nuts because he's misinterpreted the song, etc., etc. So when we got back together, we were down in this place I am now. And I said, if it's nostalgia, seriously, properly, I'm out. Really, if those songs sound nostalgic to me, dated, nostalgic amount. But that group of individuals started playing and genuinely, I really was, I thought, this is fucking great, that racket. Now, either of you guys could jump into the rats tomorrow and it would still be the rats, but it would be different because you were in it. Mm -hmm. But whatever a unique group of individuals make, a noise, that's it. And it's it felt to me like, this is right. I want—I didn't know it, but I wanted to hear that specific noise again. And I've sort of said of, of late, of the, over the past three weeks of doing interviews, that the band really only makes sense now, it occurs to me, at periods of chaos and confusion. That we cease to have a, a context or a relevance when things even out. So 75, 76... Britain is 27% inflation. You know, that's it. The economy's over. It's done. Mm -hmm. There literally is no future, as the great Johnny said. Uh, New York is yeah. bankrupt. The police don't police. No fireman will answer your call. You can't drive in the streets. I was there. You couldn't drive. They've just invented, they've just invented mugging. Yeah. So uh, Gerald Ford, the president, literally on television said, New York City dropped dead. So, of course, you're going to get the pistols and the clash. Of course, you're going to get the Ramones and talking heads. In Ireland, it was different, but the same thing, it offered nothing to a bunch of kids. So, we, we start off. You had more to fight against, actually, funnily enough, because, you know, it's all very well people talking about, you know, being a punk in the King's Road. And yes, there was high unemployment and all of that, but, but you had far more things to fight against in Ireland. And, and they had far more things to fight you about because you were forcing change amongst a certain generation. That's one thing that really came out of the film, Bob, which is that um, as having known you as an English, you know, I was a fan, but um, the whole Irish angle, which we didn't really know about, through punk, the only Irish angle we knew was Northern Ireland. Yeah, and... Uh, and... Uh, well, part of a, a thesis of mine is that punk is largely Irish anyway, 
forget the rats. Johnny Rotten was specifically Irish. I mean, like if you wanted a personality type, I don't know if any of you were around in his family house at the time. But I, when we say poverty, I mean, I'm serious. This is like Dickensian, but a tight, tight family. And George Murphy, of course, Boy George, uh, you know, Elvis Costello is Ross Mac- uh, Declan McManus, um, Morrissey, uh, Liam and Noel. You just get this very pissed off, antsy thing, but very clever. You know, Noel and Liam can turn a phrase. Boy George had a deafness turn of phrase. Morrissey has a turn of phrase. Elvis Costello, a turn of phrase. Johnny Rodden, pithy to a spear point, you know. So a lot of this thing is interesting. Part of the thing, my pet theory, is that punk was um, two generations of firstborn immigrants. So you had the Jamaican kids finally coming into the economy and you had the uh, firstborn of the 50s generation of the Irish coming into the economy and they were offered nothing by the state. So they kick off. And um, we, again, were outside of all that loop. And this was a, we emerged in a country that was really mired in an aspect of the 19th century. You know, there was nothing that you could compare to the UK. And of course, the English didn't give a fuck about Ireland, nor should they particularly. But they had a, either a romantic idea of it, or they had a vaguely a view that it was sort of England anyway. And then they saw the violence in the North and didn't quite get it. It was some, you know, family feud. And... Um, there was this great claustrophobia of silence, this great national suffocation. And, you know, the weird thing about the film for me, which I hadn't understood until I saw the film, was that none of us had a family. And that's really weird. And I didn't know that Jerry, the guitar player, really, I didn't know this, had a brutally dysfunctional family. And I mean brutal. And, you know, he was just this quiet, soft guy. He used to hang around, you know, the free had the parties, and he'd play Big Bill Bruins, young guitar, and bore everybody with a lecture about Mississippi John Earth. But I listened because I thought he was quite good. And it's only from seeing the guys on the film, and then they're all in boarding school. Jerry's got zero family. My mum dies at seven. My dad is selling towels around the countryside of rural Ireland in the 50s. I don't think they even knew what a fucking town was. And uh, it was the only job he could get. So, you know, he's away on Monday, back on Friday. My relationship with him is non-existent, becoming violent in our teens. And, uh, and of necessity, we bind together. Not so much group together, but bind together. Um, kind of not with desperation or fever, but just some necessity. And then you enter, then you enter into the state. And the state is really a larger family. It's the nation under law, isn't it? It's, it's the larger national family. Mm-hmm. And that fails you as well. So of course you're going to kick against it. And the minute I got on telly, I thought it would be the first and last time I'd be on telly. It's this You can't underestimate the importance of the TV show we were on. It was the national conversation. And I just kicked off. Was that the Late Late Show? Yeah. The Late Late Show was a weird phenomenon, which I don't think people out of Ireland could quite understand. It was two hours on a Friday or a Saturday night. 
and uh, literally people stayed in and then went to the pub afterwards. It wasn't late, late at all. Um, and uh, I described Ireland at one point like a deep diving whale. You were aware that these great titans existed somewhere, but you only saw them when they breached for two hours on a Friday night. And Ireland was that deep diving whale. There was another Ireland. It was mature and sophisticated and wanted to be part of the, the late 20th century, but was disallowed by the institutions of a wholly corrupt government, uh, tacit at least, if not materially complicit in the murder in the North, a wholly corrupt uh, state church, um, busily abusing the children of its parishioners, and a silent business class who were reaping the whirlwind of all this mess. And we shut up about it. And I don't know why. All of us knew. Like Pete Briquette says in the film, he comes from Barry James Duff. And he says the phone numbers were Barry James Duff. He had a wind-up phone. That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Barry James Duff 4 was the uh, policeman. Barry James Duff 3, the solicitor. Barry James Duff 2, the doctor. Barry James Duff 1, the priest. I come out of that, certainly. Uh, there's a bit that we clipped where Bono just says, I was sitting at home with Gavin Friday. And this animal comes on the screen, me. And they're, they're just going, yes, yes, and looking at each other. Did you ever have a sense of guilt, the fact that you guys came to London? No, I mean, as they all make clear, and again, separately and nothing to do with me. I mean, Gary's very great comment, he said, all I wanted to do was... Uh, play my guitar and drive my motorbike both loud and fast. fast. Yeah, that was great. And and get the fuck out of Ireland. Everyone ends their thing. What was your, you know, the question was, what was the ambition? And everyone said, get the fuck out. When I was 11, Gary, um, if you know Dublin Bay, you know, Bono lives on one end of it and that's where we come from, Dunleary. At the other end is Hope. And the bay is flat, except Hope rises like this humpbacked whale I talked about. And when I was 11, especially on foggy days, I'd go to the sea wall outside our, outside our school during the lunch break, and I'd just sit there. And Hoth would rise over the flat fog. The rest of Dublin was obscure. And I'd sit there and purposefully imagine that this was London, well, England, and imagine I was there, because that's where the Rolling Stones were, that's where Pete Townsend was. That's where the world was happening. And I was not, this wasn't home at all. That was, over there was, and I was going to get there. So all of us needed, needed to get out. And that was the great shame about it. So when we got out, we couldn't go further in Ireland. You had to, unlike the U2s who could stay, there was no industry. Um, so we had maybe to establish that. But then we arrive in the middle of what we now understand was a giant cultural revolution, but at the time just seemed like a youth phase. And we were thought of as Johnny come late, these are Aravist, because we'd been playing for a year in the obscurity of Ireland, and I wanted to have saxophones and choruses and choirs in my songs. And that was, that was not allowed. So our first gigs were with people who were friendly with us, the Americans. So the Ramones and Talking Heads. And we played at schools in the afternoon at 4 p.m. 
in gymnasiums. So you had the Ramones, yeah. the Talking Heads, and the Boomtown Rats <laughs> in a gymnasium. And, and like all these bemused Bay City Roller 15-year-olds with mullets in their school uniforms <laughs> staring at us, you know, I mean... Because Bob, you said because you're in the film is that you came through, up through the Doctor Feelgood was a big thing for you, right? Yeah. Which is which is everyone's kind of which was the sort of the sort of road into punk anyway. So what was yeah. the punk moment for you? What was? And were you in Ireland or in London by that point when you when sort we of punk happened we, to you? Because you famously said that punk happened in the music press. In Ireland, we didn't know we were punks. Doctor Feelgood was our north star for lots of reasons. Um, the fact that, like all of my generation, we couldn't handle things like Queen or Genesis. Rock and roll had moved beyond saying anything that was pertinent to your life. And uh, so you hear the feel-goods, and they're not using Montreux Studios and 72 tracks as another instrument, you know? Use your fucking instruments, you cunts, you know? And, uh, um, and it was, they were four-track, and they looked... So yeah, excellent. Yeah. You know, you couldn't even define why it was excellent. Like they're normal clothes, but they're fucked up. What's going on, you know? And their hair was not a hairstyle. And the music was so aggressive. Well, I think, wait, wait, with you, as far as punk is concerned, for me, I never thought of you as punk, but I thought, because I thought you ticked some punk boxes, which was, there was an anger, and there was obviously a, a sense of energy and speed in the music. But it seemed to me that your, your lyrics were, were not, I don't wanna, but they were much more storytelling about he doesn't want to. Uh, it, it, it was about other people. And we were well, looking out for number one. Found us, that. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, a lot of them was, you know, about telling great stories. Yeah. And in, in the kind of way that if Springsteen was punk, then, then you were a sort of Irish version of that. There was two things, again, from the feel goods and Van Morrison. So if you combine those, that's where I was going. Once I heard the feel-goods, they were writing about Canvey Island. What the fuck? I had to look it up in the Natlas. And they were writing about people around them. But so was Van, and he was always a touchstone. And it was that street storytelling, Madame George, all that stuff. But he also did Gloria. And I saw them when they were in the local dance ballroom. I went to the Stella Ballroom on... Uh, Saturday night, then played a couple of gigs with Van and they were doing things like Gloria, you know. And so I thought you could, I didn't consciously think about when I wrote Looking After Number One, literally I was on the dole queue. And um, again, go back to what was happening in England. So the first thing you hear of Johnny Rotten is, I am the Antichrist. One of the first things you hear from Joe Strummer is, White Riot, I want to ride of my own. The first line, that most people heard of mine was the world owes me a living. So this was, this was a rejection of the post-war world, the cons consensuality of the post-war And it had come to an end when the unions walked in and out of the hopeless Callaghan government and demanded this, that, and the other. Um, in Ireland, it wasn't quite that. It was just an utter hopelessness of a any sort of future continuing on an economy based on some social realist version of a super farmer or some bollocks like that. And uh, I was started writing when I was in the abattoir and I was making notes 
and I had no idea I'd been in a band. I had no ambition to be in a band. I didn't wasn't writing songs, just writing stuff. And here was an obvious metaphor. This wasn't just an abattoir of animals. This was a slaughterhouse of human dreams. And I started writing about this guy, Paul, who I called Billy, because it's scanned better, and his girlfriend. And I was on this narrative trail, and it sounded to me in my head, not like a song, but like a Van Morrison story. And so all that gets incorporated. The speed and the rage comes out of Feel Goods, Gloria, all that. And I was mixing those up. That was the first record, talking about the people I knew. We come to the UK. It was attitude only. You pick up a guitar and you make any sort of racket because that's enough. Just that sheer expression, like an art piece, that'll do it. And given that it was all about a rejection of consensualism, and what about me? You know, where's my future? The revolution was being called for by almost all of the original bands of that period. Not the Americans, but for the British and in my part, the Irish. Don't forget, the undertones came three years later, two years later. The U2s came six years later. Um, Stiff little fingers three or four years later. So what they were talking about was the revolution of the self. Uh, a, a, a sort of nihilism into which would grow something. And it came. But the great shock was that no one expected it to come from the right. No one expected it to be a woman. No one expected her to have a handbag that swiped at the squirearchy, her own party, the opposition, the trade unions, the monarchy, or any institution. In many ways, you can argue that Margaret Thatcher was simply Johnny Rotten in drag, you know? And um, it's, uh, you know, and in fact, boy George Martin himself on the look. But I'd written, she's going to do you win in 1970. Five or six, I'd spotted this English politician um, when, she, when this woman was minister for, uh, for education, and I saw her. T- yeah, and I saw her on TV, and like, I, I, that's when I watch out for w- watch out for your baby. Watch out for her now. She ain't no lady. She's a stupid cow. She's gonna do you in, and like so. But you know, nobody knew that then. But uh, that's what that's what was going on. Do you think that punk uh, and what you guys did, did it, did it change anything? Yes, in, it did. In the end? Did it make a cultural change uh, you, that grew into a government? Yes, it did. I mean, if you just take English music cannot exist unto itself. It's generally at the vanguard of art, not painting, not movies, not TV. It's music in the UK is the vanguard. And it's street music, like street fashion, which becomes haute couture. That's what happens with English music. It always comes out of the street. And I think that's because up to now, the social tectonic plates grind against each other. And really... The- hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A few ways out up to the current economy was sport or music. And anyone can have a go, which was the great punk revelation. Mm-hmm. And um, you can also have a go in the park with your football and a scout may pick you up. It's, it's very similar. Um, punk was perfectly emblematic of the economic moment and indeed technological moment because it stripped back technology mm-hmm. to its essence to say, no, it's, it's this. It isn't about knobs and fiddles and stuff. It's what you use this thing for. And if you take Jamie Reed's brilliant iconography, Britain itself was being was wa- running very fast into an economic brick wall. The country was barely holding itself together. I mean, barely. Mm-hmm. There was great dissension amongst the, from the unions through to the institutions through to the government, and it was held together by sticky plaster, by safety pins, by just about holding together. And we were all being held hostage in some sort of great kidnap by the institutions. And of course, the great insight of Jamie Reid was to just feel this and to make this into a never mind the bollocks poster and to have the, the, you know, the emblems of the institutions, the monarchy, etc., with safety pins and torn up shirts, which was Johnny, and holding it together. It was absolutely brilliant, but it wasn't fun to be in middle of especially if they were very suspicious of you you know the roxy music was smelly as fuck and people looked absolutely horrible but the whole point until you lot came along was the beauty of ugliness what you guys reversed was into making the beauty of ugliness into the ugliness of beauty so you know thatcher comes along there's a new economy. There's a new challenge to the old ways that's now an institutional challenge. And suddenly you get the cult of the individual. There is no such thing as society. Geldof saying, the world owes me a living. Johnny Rotten saying, I'm the Antichrist. Joe Strummer saying, I want a ride of my own. That's true. We're going to do that. Here comes the Thatcher-Reagan thing. And a bunch of kids grow up and are emblematic, emblematic of that, I'm going to make a theatre of myself. I'm going to fucking dress up. I'm going to walk around. I'm going to, you know, you're going to notice me, dude. And I'm going to sing about my aspirations. I, I think what you gave to British people with, with Live Aid, or to, 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 to glo- people globally with Live Aid, was a sense that they could have power above and beyond ticking a box every four years. I, I don't think that's right. Um, uh, the taxi drivers always remind me of, oh, fuck it, when you tore up that John Travolta hockey thing, mate, yeah, you know. And then they say, yeah, good man, Bob. Oh, no, no, mate, I'm not charging you for this. You told Thatcher to go and fuck herself. I didn't, but, you know, or you said, <laughs> you said give us your fucking money. I didn't, but, um, <clears throat> no, I, I disagree with you, Gaz. What's weird 
is that there was a whole new idea of how in a society and economy would function. And you had the loads of money thing, you had the, the um, uh, you know, the, the, the big uh, deregulation of the city, et cetera, et cetera. So you had the loads of money thing. You know, Thatcher is misquoted. She did, she did say there's no such thing as society, but, 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 but what there are are groups of individuals who cohere out of self-interest in effect. Into this fairly atavistic attitude, a spaceship lands, and it's called Live Aid. Now, that wasn't a great insight in my part. I, I just thought that people... In a world, if you remember, we had the talk during the even during the Band-Aid session where the CIP, the Common Agricultural Policy, we paid tax to grow surplus food. We paid further tax to store that food. And most disgracefully, we paid more tax to destroy that surplus mm-hmm. food. While eight miles south of Europe, eight miles south of Europe, 30 million people were going to die of no food. That's nonsense. So there was this logic. This is bollocks. That builds up to a head of steam through the uh, Christmas record, which none of us understood or thought would happen. You were, you were on it. You're very excited on the day. If you look at the film of yourself, you're totally in it, and you're predicting that this is going to go nuts. I wasn't. Um, but come the gig, um, it was almost like a complete, there was a sense of liberation I, I get from looking at the film. I was on my own thing during the day. Fuck, this isn't working. Who's on next? Get this going, you know. Um, but when I walked out on stage as a pop singer, again, having been on this manic-focused thing for six months, um, what you were on about hit me. Uh, the possibility and the romance of it really took me aback. So I I was pulled up sharp and uh, it charged the day for me. It got me out of my logistical continuum that I've been on. Um, So about three days before I'd sat with Bowie in, in Harvey Goldsmith's office and David, you know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. He genuinely was a kind bloke. You know, this great, austere, distant star sort of thing, you know, this great artist of our time was just a lovely man. And from the get-go with Band-Aid, he said, I can't get to the recording, but I'll give you something. He said, but I'll help in any other way. I said, will you launch the film, which Michael Gray gave us five minutes before Top of the Pops? He said, yeah. And he wore this shit T-shirt. I mean, you know, really crap. I mean, this is the great avatar of what's cool, you know. <laughs> and suddenly, shit T-shirts for poor people, that's okay, because David says so. And he never stopped saying, can I help you with more stuff? Can I help you with more? So come the, there was no question of Bowie not doing this. No question, he was just right there. So three or four days before, he, of course, we sat together, at about 11, at night, about one in the morning in Harvey's office, Harvey goes with the promoter's office, with Jagger on one side of me and Bowie on the other. Left and right, two giants of my life. And they're trying to work out, can they do a transcontinental duet? And Mick is saying, you so will we do. And I said, well, you know, something, something that works a duet, like, you know, with, with the, the, the satellite delay. And I said, you know, something like, 
Marley's One Love. It's corny, but it'll work. So in my left ear, I've got Mick Jagger. In my right ear, David <laughs> Bowie. <laughs> and Mick is going, One Love. And David's going, One Love. You know? And, and I, so it's, it's, and I'm going, this is fucking mega. No one else will ever experience this. <laughs> and, uh, and Hal Uplinger is on the phone from LA because he's the satellite dude. And he's saying, guys, it won't work. You've got a half second delay. It's just going to catch up. They go away that night, two in the morning, three in the morning. They go straight into a studio. They record Dancing in the Streets. They finish at 5.30. It took them an hour and a half to do the whole track. They then go out and make up this video as they go along where they do that ridiculous out-camping <laughs> each other dancing. By 12 noon, the record was done, dusted, dealt, number one, and they give us all the money. So these guys Amazing. were right in it. Um, so come the day, Bowie says, what do to do? And I go, well, most people have got three songs, but hey, it's David Bowie, four. And he goes, yeah, okay. I said, heroes, of course, you know. He said, yeah, okay. I said, but listen, I want to show you this. I've just got this film from CBC Canada. And I put on the film of, um, you know, the famine that Canada should, couldn't show because the, the, the photography was obscene. Well, what it was showing was people in the sumps of human existence. And David started crying. And what had happened was that Brian Stewart, the, the anchorman for CBC, had shot all this stuff. CBC had rejected it. And the editor in his, in his room in Addis had been listening, as he just cut it all together for archive, had been listening to the cars, who's going to drive you home tonight? And of course, you know, if you're editing sort of abstractedly, yeah, yeah, yeah. you cut to the beat. And he cut it and he suddenly realized what he'd done. Who's going to pick you up when you fall down? He's talking about a girl, but not now. Who's going to drive you home tonight? And the impact of it. So I played this to Bowie and he just collapsed. Harvey was there, I was there, and Bowie was sobbing. And he said, are you showing this? I said, we can't. It's... People would just turn off. He said, I'm introducing this. And I said, David, if you start, if you leave the stage, people go and make tea. We've lost them. They're not coming back. And he said, I'm doing three songs. I'm introducing this. Uh, okay. So unlike the Queen uh, movie, that's the point that the, the phone lines collapsed. And to your point, finally, sorry to go on, about the sense of hope that things had changed. If you look at the Live Aid film, here are these people in mirroring your, your, your joy in music and what it does and what it makes you feel. And these are the youth of England in excelsis. Beauty on that beautiful summer's day for no other reason than wanting to be there and to help. And these beautiful girls are on these beautiful boys' naked shoulders. And Bowie says, I want you to watch this. And on comes Beerhan and all these other kids that were kept alive, finally. And you can see these beautiful flowers of youth Wilt, these girls, they're all like this. And then they stop and their hands drop and their faces are register shock. They start crying. They try and get off their boyfriend's shoulders. Their boyfriends are just staring at the screen. It's an incredible thing to wow. watch. Mm -hmm. 
And wow. that's one of the killer moments. But that's when the phone lines collapsed, you know. Bob, is it, do you think, in a way, that, that Live Aid was, was where, I won't call it counterculture, call it folk culture, where it took the throne? See, Gary, when I pitched up in Africa just after the record and trawled through that horror, rapidly I understood that famine was not um, an instrument of a scarcity of food. It was an instrument of poverty. That in the UK, we are not going to die of hunger if there's no food. We'll just buy it, we'll import it, we'll give it away, we'll do whatever. So the necessity was to raise a political lobby because the, if you want to change economies, you must engage with the agents of change, whether you like it or not, including Thatcher. Um, and so the political lobby that was raised by, besides the money, which dealt with the immediacy of the emergency, uh, the political lobby raised meant that I could then talk to politicians everywhere, Reagan, uh, you know, Schroeder, uh, no, sorry, whoever was in power at the time around the world. And you could then begin to write the policy agenda. And suddenly into power comes Live Aid babies, people who had stayed up all day in their early political life to watch this thing. Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, Bill Clinton, Gerhard Schroeder. Uh, these guys were in power. And so we had access, a lot of access to this. And so the boys and girls with guitars get to write the policy, literally the policy. So I persuaded Blair in 2003 for the British GA two years later to analyze precisely what was why Africa remained outside the global economic loop in this new phenomenon called globalization. So it sat for a year, I was part of it, and I wasn't going to let it sit in some fucking bureaucrat shelf because it was a good work. So that was the logic behind Live Aid, because Bush did not want to really give up the debt of the poorest countries, which had them by the neck. Nor did Chirac, nor did anyone else. But if you could force them by putting a million people on the streets of Berlin, guy, or Philadelphia, or Hyde Park, then what's it, it would force them to be answerable. So that was largely what this ultimately was. Mm. So in that respect, yes. Did it change the culture of the country? No. But there were two things about 85 and 05. I think 1985 was finally the promise of rock and roll fulfilled. Now, I know that's a grand thing to say, but certainly there wasn't a musician on that day who wasn't supposed to be there. And as it built up, I saw it as the history of our thing. So in... For example, Holland, you have B.B. King, which will be seen. BBC are probably going to re-show Live Aid on the, on the anniversary of on July this year, the 35th. B.B. King's in Holland. Miles Davis is in Belgium. All these guys were on Live Aid. So you have the, literally the history of rock. And, um, but it culminates on that day where everything is remembered, the sense of possibility and youth that Elvis first encapsulated, the anger of Little Richard's a wop bop a lop bop a lop bam boom, the rock and roll lyric, it's not English, it's not fucking Mandarin, it's not Spanish, it's fuck you, a wop bop a lop bop, I'm Russian, yeah, I get it, dude, I'm with you, you know, I'm Chinese, a wop bop a lop, fuck you, yeah, I get it. All that, <laughs> all you need is love, 
that wonderful, intelligent naivety. You know, all you need is love. That great, naive insight. True, actually. And only rock and roll can say it with that naive sense. And that came good in 85. And everyone who needed to be on those stages was there. 05, you get a... It's really interesting. Rock and roll in our time, Prat Kemkeld up, was the central spine of the culture, not our culture, the culture. All ideas were mediated and trans- transmitted through the three chords of rock and roll, essentially. All our social, cultural, economic, political ideas came through that medium. In 2000, 2004, Google invent data and social media. So social media becomes the medium of our time. Marshall McLuhan becomes real. The medium, quite literally, is the message. Okay, so suddenly you get that, and rock and roll ceases to be the central mediator of ideas. It becomes social media, which we still don't know how to operate. 2005, 50 years after rock and roll begins, it ends. But also it's the end of the 20th century and the end of the Second World War. Because the most powerful economic countries in the world and Russia sit down and for the last time, they cooperate. For the last time, they achieve consensus. And they achieve that for the last time through compromise. Now, can you imagine, seriously now, let me put this to you. A demagogue like Xi Ping, a mafia thug like Putin, a religious nationalist like Erdogan, and a vulgar fool like Trump, sitting down together? Never mind compromise. Never mind consensus for people they will never meet or see. Never mind a consideration for the poor of the planet. Could that happen? And the answer is no, it couldn't. So Live 8 is the end of that moment. It's also the introduction of the 21st century because we're now using AOL, this new thing, to split the screen so you can watch the concert simultaneously. It's also the end of the 20th century and hello 21st century because the day after they agree to free the burden of the poorest people of the world, the 21st century is introduced by the murder of 58 people in the tubes and buses of London through Al-Qaeda. So it's a phenomenal arc, dynamic arc of this whole story that you and I, well, the three of us were involved in. But if you were a young Bob Geldof now, um, where would you be looking to, 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 to say your piece? Would you be wanting to still, where would you want to find your gang to give you another family? It would definitely be something online. But when you look at sort of where people, as we started off this conversation, where they've tried to lasso the rest of the world in some sort of well-meaning get-together, it's essentially a failure because artistically it doesn't work at all. Visually it doesn't work. It, it doesn't signify an other, which is what the, the, the uh, I suppose, it sounds like I'm bigging myself up, I'm not, which is what uh, I suppose Live A Dignic signified. Mm. You know, again, as I said, it cannot live outside its technological moment, rock and roll. And the insight for Live Aid was there simply must be enough satellites there by now so we can all talk to each other for the first time since we left the Rift Valley 300,000 years ago. 
um, all of us, we can't talk to each other because there's a common language now. It's called pop. And yeah. it's not about English. It's the lingua franca of the planet. And we can talk about a central problem that if it occurs will be um, a fatal wound on the human corpus. So can we agree on that? Yes. Can we talk to each other through this common language? Yes. How do we do it through this new technology called satellite? So all those factors came together without consideration. So I would imagine that I would be doing the same thing with some, see, I think all this technology we're using now is quite pony and, and you know, I, I don't use any of it, and but I can I can see what it will do and what it can do. I I'm impatient for that to happen as yeah. ever, but I would be using this to do something. But I wouldn't be using it in the way that it's supposed to be used. As as say we use, it's convenient for us to look at each other and chat, but actually it's completely unnecessary. We could just be on the blower, um, you know. Uh, so all of those things. Um, but the honest truth. I love the rejectionist opposition movements that have no centralized authority. I love the flat, horizontal thing that the web does. So Occupy, if you remember that. Yeah. I love that. And I remember a journalist going to Wall Street and saying, you know, the TV guy saying, um, you know, take me to your leader in effect, you know, saying who's in charge. And the guy says, yeah, it's me. And he goes, yeah, but I've just picked you sort of randomly from a tent. And he goes, yeah. And he goes, he goes, yeah, well, I'm in charge. And he goes, yeah, but isn't there a leader? I'm the leader. And he goes, really? And he goes, yeah, well, he said, we're all leaders. There isn't a leader. And then he says, well, you know, what are you ask, asking for? He said, we're asking for nothing. And he says, but then, you know, how can people sit down and argue with you? We don't want to sit down with anyone. Well, what do you ask for? We're asking them to fuck off, you know. And just that argument, just fuck off. And Extinction Rebellion is a bit like that. Fuck off until they, they didn't quite be middle class. They didn't quite understand the populist dynamic yeah. and blew it. But I had a conversation with um, Bono during the Cameron G8. And I said, you know what these fuckers are going to do? Their big thing is to sit in Green Park with daffodils because the G8 has been held in Wales in some obscure valley. And I said, sit in the Hyde Park with daffodils. That's going to move the fucking needle. And I said, you know, no, it's got to be more. And he said, like what? And I said, there, you know, no is not always a negative. A great, big, glorious fuck off, you know, works. And, he, and I remember him saying, well, yeah, that's not my melody, man. So I said, what is your melody? He <laughs> did. <laughs> you know, so, like, he just wants me to argue with him so he sharpens his point and then gets on and does what he wants to do. It comes back to your thing about faux democracies, you know. <laughs> what are you doing next? What are you doing next? I mean, we had a guy and I were meant to be on tour um, and obviously that's all been pushed forward into the future and no one really knows. What, what do you think is going to happen with live music? Um, I, well, for us, it's a disaster because we brought out the album and announced the tour two hours before they announced lockdown. So um, we had to put back the tour to October, November. But frankly, I don't think, I don't think people will come out. Um, I mean, are you going to stand in a crowd of 100,000, 30,000 at a festival, all jumping around sweaty? Uh, I, I, I'd be very wary of it. The absolute last thing that's going to come back is what we do. We're you booking know. for next, um, end of next summer, 2021. But... 
I think uh, governments, if there's a second wave and it looks like South Korea is beginning to kick off, uh, you know, if there's, they'll have to go into extreme lockdown again. Um, the, the, I mean, the, the fact that Britain has got the worst death rate in the world. Number one, well done, yeah. you cunts. You know, I mean, it's just shown how incapable these ideological wankers are, uh, you know, are a government. You know, it is a disgrace. And yeah. the systemic failures, the managerial failures, you know, they should leave now. And, um, you know, if we're not very careful because the economy is so tanked, we, w- we are in a depression. There will be two million unemployed. So, uh, you know, in, in terms of people, people will want to go out, but there'll be different ways of doing it. We, we're doing the theatres. Yeah, we sold head. we sold out the palladium. We sold out the palladium, three and a half thousand people. I don't see it. And besides that, guys, stay advised. Us and the crew, traveling in convoy, same hotels, yeah. sound checks. You know them sweating, us rocking. You know on stage, backstage afterwards, the lads going back to the hotel, the lads. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to be very wary of this. Maybe this is the final end and time for something else. Uh, well, we know what else is out there. Um, we've done cine lockdown here in Kent. We've had open, we've had a, a, an open air cinema where we've done Godfather one and two. We've got three coming up where right. we do cocktails, cocktails and popcorn. You know, and uh, we just sit out like you know, Fifi and Picks and the husbands. I've been loving it. It's been it's been the best time for the family actually for years. Yeah. Tiger's stuck in Australia, but uh, yeah, so. I don't know. We know what this this current wave of media can do. Zoom has come to the fore. It isn't this, guys. It isn't this. As musicians, even late in the day, us oldies, we utilize everything that's there. You know, I mean, we, if something new comes on, musicians tear open the box, they plug the fucking thing in, bing, bing, bomb, yeah, that's yeah, a good yeah. noise, I'll use that, and then we discard it. What's next? Um, is there anything new a different way of doing it. Like podcasts, people love them. Eh, it's a radio show on a fucking tape. You know, we've been there before. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, you know, uh, the new things of entertainment, of course, Netflix have completely altered the way drama is written, which is fabulous. Yeah, absolutely. It's just been for the better. Yeah. So your novelization of TV where character is really drawn, almost Dickensian, that's brilliant. Um, the sort of, uh, you 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 can name any of the great novelists, and that's what's going on on the best drama yeah, on TV. Um, so shooting stuff's pretty hard at the moment. Shooting anything's pretty hard at the moment, but I'm sure you yeah. know artists artists find a way. You know, there, there's a there's a young generation out there of creative people that will find a way to do. But things. I don't believe that hip hop is. You know, don't forget on Live Aid we had run DMC. Um, you know, that was 40 years ago, and um, uh, it's 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 a fabulous thing. I mean, Kanye is just unbelievable, I think. You know, just his productions are just yeah. insanely excellent. But, uh, and what I was really interested with hip-hop is as they became billionaires, they still talked about that brilliantly. Um, but has it got meaning over and above simply being music? You know, really, Public, uh, public Enemy, NWA, Eminem, is there anything new to say? Yeah. Is does it does it raise the hackles after that? Not really. It's just great. Um, 
the new thing, of course, is crossover. Not new, it's been 10 years, crossover country. Yeah, great. Uh, but it's, it's pop, just pop. Um, that's fine. But I, at some point in my life, in fact, at age 10, a golden thread was dropped down to this lost boy out of the purple rock and roll ether. And it was called Radio Luxembourg. Mm. And I clung onto that golden rope. And I've never let go of it. And as I get older, my grip doesn't lessen. It grows fiercer and fiercer. And without question, had that one small station from the improbable micro state of Luxembourg <laughs> not, not played Mick and Keith and John and Paul and Bob and Pete, had they not told me that, had they not instructed me to go primal and to find muddy waters and lightning hopkins and and howling wolf howling i'm 10 howling wolf <laughs> muddy waters you know are these forces of nature or human yeah. beings both both and yeah. they thrummed that spinal cord and are still thrumming well that was our chat with the wonderful bob geldoff thank you to bob for his time and thank you for listening and we'll be back next week with one of the country's greatest songwriters Live from his garden shed, the lovely Chris Difford. If you want to send us a question, you can email guyandgary at thepodcastworks.com and make sure you hit subscribe to our podcast and leave a nice review. See you next week. Thank See you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.